from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn in your pew Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, which is found on page 144 in the New Testament. Listen to God's word. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by his faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Our second text comes from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the second chapter, verses 1, and I'll conclude with verse 10. Page 181, if you'd like to follow along as I read. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy... Out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning. And on this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, would you bring us back to the core message of this movement? And would that message change us to be more like Christ? Amen. Well, just a few days ago, we received word that the father of, of one of Johnny's friends, Johnny is our ninth grader, the father of one of his friends has, had just died. He was 47 years old. And in these past couple of days, I have thought about this friend and his friend's brother quite often. I've especially considered what I might say to them, this junior and freshman in high school, if and when I had the opportunity to see them. Uh, the, these ponderings, these reflections have not been perfunctory uh, for me in any way, as I clearly remember most of what was said to me when I was a teenager and my father, too, had died with cancer. And over the years, I have learned that even the most well-meaning, well-intentioned, thoughtful, and good-hearted people can just flat out say the wrong things in moments and circumstances like these. I remember some of those words that were spoken to me. Uh, you need to step up and be the man of the house now. You need to be brave and strong for your mom and your brother. You need to have faith. You need to believe that your dad is in a better place. And you need to take comfort in that and move on. Step up, be the man, be brave, be strong, have faith, press on. Those were all things I knew deep down that I simply couldn't do. I couldn't do any of those things. I had no energy. I had no muscle for them. And in that moment, I needed something else entirely. I've shared this story before in multiple contexts, but, but one of the most poignant encounters I had uh, at the time of my father's death was at the calling hour the day before his funeral in the funeral home. And it was with one of my longest friends, a guy named Scott McDevitt. Scott and I were literally playpen pals, born four months apart and four row homes down from each other. And he came in and I saw him come in toward the back and he waited in line for quite some time. And he finally came to where me and my mother and my brother were standing, and he did not offer a single word. He did not try to say something to make the moment more bearable. He simply reached out and he hugged me. He didn't ask me to do anything. He didn't ask me to believe anything. He didn't ask me to be anything. 
He just offered himself as a gift. And, and in that moment, I realized that was exactly what I needed. It's what I couldn't bring up or summon or, or conjure from the very depths of who I was. I didn't have it within me. I didn't have it according to my own will. I did not have the strength to provide what I needed. He had it. It was something not from within, but something from the outside, something transcendent, something that I couldn't do, but that had to be done to me and in me. It was the thing I needed the most. I was struck by it. I was, I was overwhelmed by it. There, there's a passage in the book of Zechariah, one of the, the so-called minor prophets. Not a lot of sermons coming out of Zechariah. But there's this great scene where the people of God have just returned from exile, years of exile, generations of exile. And they return home to see that their house of worship, to see that the temple was in shambles, to see the dwelling places in which they formerly and their, their parents and grandparents had formerly lived were in shambles. Their infrastructure, their economy was in shambles. Everything was in disarray, and they wonder amongst themselves, how in the world are we going to manage this situation? How in the world are we going to press on, given what we know of what our land and what our community has become? And God speaks to the prophet Zechariah and says that it will happen says that it will be done, not by your power, says the Lord, not by your might, but by the Lord of hosts, the very Spirit of God will do it. In other words, God is going to make a way. The future, our salvation, our relief, our comfort, our hope will not come from our own hands. It will not be delivered from something within inside of us, not by our power, not by our might, but will be delivered by something outside of us, the very Spirit of the Lord. And that, friends, is what we in the church call grace. That is grace. Have you ever been struck by grace? Have you ever been in a moment of, of exile? A moment at a funeral home? A moment where everything looks to be in shambles and you have nothing to offer the situation? Absolutely nothing. No strength, no will, no might, no power, and all of a sudden something from the outside strikes you. Something from the outside moves in and makes a way forward. That is grace. It's hard to put into words this profound theological anchor of our faith and our life together, but I would like to borrow some words from 20th century theologian Paul Tillich as he talks about the meaning of grace. He says, we cannot transform our lives unless we allow them to be transformed by the stroke of grace. 
It happens or it doesn't happen. And certainly it does not happen, he says, if we, we try to force it upon ourselves, just as it shall not happen so long as we think in our self-competency that we have no need for it. Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. Grace strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. Grace strikes us, he says, when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life that we loved or from which we were estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure has become intolerable to us. Grace strikes us when year after year, the longed-for perfection of life does simply not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades when despair destroys all joy and courage. He says, sometimes at that moment and in these moments, a wave of light breaks into the darkness. And it's though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, he says, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before, and we may not believe more than before, but everything he says is transformed. In that moment, grace conquers sin, and reconciliation bridges estrangement. And nothing, he concludes, nothing is demanded of that experience. Nothing. No religious or moral or intellectual presupposition, nothing at all but acceptance. This acceptance, this grace was precisely what a 33-year-old Augustinian monk and professor living in 16th century Europe, a man named Martin Luther, it's precisely that acceptance and that grace that he experienced firsthand. When he came upon the words of Paul, like the words we heard read from the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans, specifically when he heard words read or read, him, read them with his own eyes, words like these from Paul, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. When Luther heard and read those words, the Spirit moved in them in such a way, making them the very word of God. And Luther was transformed. It was a mystical experience. 
It was a transcendent experience. It was a, it was a second conversion of sorts. No longer would he interpret the concept of God's righteousness in pejorative terms. No longer would he view God's righteous, righteousness rather as God's punishment, but rather he would see God's righteousness as an expression of God's grace and benevolence to all people, to everyone. It was a game changer for Luther. His personal piety, his professorship, his priestly vocation pivoted on this revelation. But, but, what began as a deeply personal and mystical and transcendent experience by one single solitary Christian living in the 16th century quickly became an organized movement that will mark its 500th anniversary this coming Tuesday. 500 years ago this Halloween. So kids, when you're trick-or-treating, remember, this is the day. 500 years ago that Luther pinned his 95 thesis on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and the Protestant Reformation was born. We'll get back to that in just a second. But I want to fast forward 400 years. In the earliest part of the 20th century, 1909 to be exact, a French social commentator and essayist named Charles Pegway said this. He said, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. <laughs> everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Politics, in this case, is to be framed in the platonic sense. It's simply the way in which the people, the citizenry, govern themselves through law, economics, and institutions. But governance doesn't emerge on a whim. Governance is not born of its own will or its own strength, but rather it springs forth from an ideal. It springs forth from a supreme value that the people hold, a supreme value that they are committed to. It's, it's born of some compelling value or aspiration to which the individual or the com collective community say, yes, this is the anchor of our life. And I think Pegway is, is using the concept of mysticism in this sense. That is in the sense of, of a compelling, transcendent ideal or supreme value. Something that is outside of our control, outside of our, our comprehension. Something that, that comes upon us. This mystical, transcendent experience where a supreme value or ideal is made known to us. Democracy, for example, does not find its origin in governance. It doesn't find its origin in the Constitution, right? It finds its origin, at least in our country, in the supreme values, in these ideals of freedom, of self-governance, of self-determination, and self-rule. I think this is what Pegway meant when he said everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. The mystical is the transcendent ideal. It's the thing that comes from outside of us. It's the supreme value that is expressed and embraced by an individual or a community or even amongst the masses. But then, but then it is systematized. 
Then it is organized and disseminated and manipulated and controlled through structures and and methods and laws and order and rights and rules and regulations and competitions. This organizing feature is, in the purest sense, politics. When the mystical becomes organized, that is politics. Everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Exhibit A of the truth of this statement is the Reformation itself. Luther's mystical experience of God's grace was subsequently organized, disseminated, and integrated by an influential and politically powerful segment of the people. It became its own religious political movement that established insiders and outsiders, that established heroes and heretics, and drew a line in the sand and said, these people over here, these are the faithful ones, and these over here, well, not so much. And over the course of the past 500 years, the mystical origins of this movement from Luther to Calvin to reformers and pastors and lay people throughout these past five centuries, we have followed in their footsteps and we have produced new churches. We have created new church governance. We have created new doctrine, new theology, new ways to think and talk about how the church should engage society. Everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. This 500-year-old movement began with a mystical and transcendent experience of God's grace for one person, for one person and then ends in the politics organization and enterprise known as Protestantism that has affected the whole wide world. So now may be a good time to name the challenges we face as we live into this history. For anybody who who still says, I'm a Protestant, What challenges do we carry in our time and in our place? Because what began as a deep spiritual and mystical revelation of God's grace did become for us organized, politicized throughout the centuries. And I think sometimes, many times over the course of history, and even today, we forget why we're here in the first place. We forget what transcendent event took place to bring us to this moment. And the pattern over five centuries goes something like this. We have said in given points of time, it's all about grace for all people, except for the Catholics. It's all about grace for all people, except for the Jews. It's all about grace for all people, except for women. It's all about grace for all people, except native people and indigenous people. It's all about God's grace for all people, except for non-whites. It's all about God's grace for all people, except for atheists. 
It's all about grace for God's people, except for gays. It's all about God's grace for all people, except for Hindus and Muslims. It's all about God's grace for all people, except for, for the criminal, except for the enemy, except for the fundamentalists, except for the, the liberals. It's about grace for all people, except, and you can fill in your own blank. This is how it has gone so often. At its very core, Protestantism offered and continues to offer a critique of faith that's rooted in anything else but God's grace made known to us in and through Jesus Christ. And that critique we still need today. We still need the Protestant church today for that reason, I believe, to point out where things have replaced that grace and that faith in Jesus Christ. But to be sure, what begins in mysticism ends in politics. And we have seen that play out where we, I would suggest, have forgotten the origins of the movement, the mystical engagement that we have had with God that points us that this is not about our work, our organization, our denomination, our politics, but it is about the very grace of God. And so perhaps the best way to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is to lean once again into that mystical experience, into that transcendent moment and that ideal, into that core theological conviction that we are saved, that we are made right, that we find our deepest acceptance with God and one another, and we find our purpose and meaning in the world through God's grace and God's acceptance of us in Jesus Christ and nothing else. I mean, how would that transform our witness to the gospel if we leaned into God's grace, even over and above our leaning into our Protestant identity? For the world longs, not for more politics, not for more governance. The world longs for more grace. The world longs for more of God. And so I'll close with this thought. Scholar Gregory Beale once wrote this, all humans have been created to be reflected, reflecting beings. And they will reflect whatever they are ultimately committed to, whether the true God or some other object in the created order. You see, our call is not to reflect Protestantism in the world. Maybe that is the best thing we can do on this 500th anniversary. Our call is to reflect God's grace into the world. The invitation to be reflections of this ultimate ideal, this mystical transcendent truth that has transformed our lives, a truth known as God's grace. Friends, the world doesn't need more Protestants. The world doesn't need more Protestantism. The world needs more God. And God is a God of grace. We're called to reflect that grace that we have been given as a gift and to share that gift with the world. On this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, may we remember that God is not a Protestant. God is grace. 
And may we be struck once more by this grace. May we reflect it. And may this 500th anniversary remind us that it's not about Protestantism. It's about grace for everyone. Amen.